Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He, has, he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the snake's reach. Then from his mouth the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helps the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged as the wo as the woman, at the woman, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands 
and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Alison. I... So I was expecting to preach on Revelation 12, but when you hear it, it's a bit nuts, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I sat there like, oh, oh yeah, I forgot that bit was in. Devour the child. That's magic, isn't it? Um, we've been in a series on Revelation for a few weeks, months even, um, since January. Why? Because Revelation is not primarily a picture of the future, but of what's happening in the present. It's apocalyptic. So it's an unveiling of what's going on in the reality we can't see. And we've been talking, that's why we've been talking about it as discipleship on the edge. What does it mean to be a disciple caught between the visible and the invisible? What does it mean to be a disciple on that kind of cutting edge? But I think that sense of revealing can be hard to feel when the images and the stories are so difficult to understand, to interpret. And that's why lots of people kind of tap out after the letters to the churches and the vision of worship in chapters 4 and 5. But not us. There's more for us here. So, are you ready for dragons and beasts and all of these magical creatures and things? Because we're entering a new four-week mini-series within Discipleship on the Edge, looking at signs and symbols. So, this week, dragons and beasts. So, Revelation 12 and 13. Very exciting. Say more about that in a minute. Next week, Babylon. The week after that, Many sevens, there are lots of sevens, plagues, seals, trumpets, things being hurled around, it's fascinating. Week four of this mini-series, the man on the horse. All of these wonderful things to come. When you've made it through May, it's going to be all the joy of a new creation as we finally get to the end. But before that, today, the dragon and the beast. So, we've heard Revelation 12 read. And actually, you can tell this chapter's important from the first couple of words, because John, writing this book, says that a great portent or a great sign appeared, and that's different from the language that we've heard recently, language which we've heard before, which is more like, look, and then I beheld. No, a great portent. And if you look at the end of chapter 11, you'll see that at this moment, we are in God's temple at the Ark of the Covenant. So we're at the most holy place where God's presence is most intense when we get to Revelation 12. And it's grand and it's important and it's actually often seen as the key to the whole book. I know, right? You've heard that chapter read and now everything we've said has made sense for the last few months, hasn't it? But what follows in Revelation 12 and 13 forms the longest continuous narrative in the whole book. I just didn't think I'd get away with having it all read. It's the biggest section that all hangs together. And what it's doing is trying to describe what is happening in our world with power and worship by playing with stories and images. It's trying to describe what's happening with power and worship by playing with stories and images. So, how are we going to do this today? I'm going to focus on the imagery in Revelation 12 before saying something about the implications of that by thinking about the beasts in Revelation 13. You can read it later. It's fascinating. And then closing by looking specifically at how we overcome 
Okay? Does that sound okay? If it doesn't, these are all the notes I have, so strap in. The woman and the dragon. Imagery in Revelation 12. What's going on there? Well, the thing that's happening in Revelation 12 is that John is clashing three stories together in the story of his vision. And these three stories have got images to represent them. They are the Old Testament, the myth of uh, Leto and Python, and the gospel. Okay? So let's take those each in turn. The imagery in this passage, firstly, is primarily drawn from the Old Testament. I want to highlight three elements to you. We're not going to go into all the heads and horns and crowns and all of that kind of stuff, but they're mainly about power, strength, authority, all of that. But first, the first one that I want to highlight to you is this. Revelation 12, verse 9, explicitly says that the dragon, that ancient serpent, is Satan or the devil. What does this do? It throws you back in your thinking to uh, Genesis 3, not Genesis 2. The slide is wrong. That's my fault. Um, and the Garden of Eden. But the dragon also takes you back to imagery of sea monsters and forces of chaos in the Old Testament, like Leviathan in Job and in the Psalms. The dragon in the Old Testament is this kind of anti-God force, and it plays an important role in this passage. It's an anti-God image. But the passage begins with the second image that I want to highlight, a woman in distress about to give birth. And this image is actually lifted from Isaiah 26, verse 17, which compares God's people in distress to a woman in labor pains about to give birth. So the woman is the people of God. And that's why it matters that God makes sure that she's all right for 1,260 days, a very specific period of time, which has its own significance, which we will not delve into now because this isn't my two-hour lecture version. Um, a time, times, and half a time, same time period. Um, but the woman is the people of God, and God cares for his people. But third, the third image that I want to highlight to you that's lifted from the Old Testament is this image of the child, this child who is going to rule with, in our translation today, an iron scepter or an iron rod. Now, the child, the child is going to rule with this rod of iron just like God's anointed in Psalm 2, which, which is on the screen. What does this mean for us? It means that the child is the Messiah, the child is the Messiah. And when we get to the man on the horse, the man on the horse also has an iron rod. So the, the Messiah is this Jesus person. The Messiah is Jesus, just in case you're in any doubt in Revelation 19. So we, we begin first, first image. We have these images which all draw on the Old Testament. What does that mean? It means that John is telling a story which exists within the story of the people of God that he already has access to. And when he starts telling this story, people know where to look to help them think about this. So they're not hearing this primarily, necessarily, as a kind of fairy tale about dragons and beasts. They're hearing this as something in which they find a place. So you and me, we're invited to find a place within it, and particularly, we're invited to see ourselves within the people of God in relationship both to the dragon and to the child. Does that make sense? 
Brilliant. That's image one. We've got two more to go. So we have these images which are on the Old Testament. That's our left-hand picture. I hope it's on, uh, maybe right? Yeah, right-hand picture as you're looking at it. Um, let's go to the middle. Um, these images, I can't tell which is left and right. Don't worry about that. Um, the middle one is definitely in the middle. These images from the Old Testament are put into a different story. They're put into the myth of Leto and Python, which is our middle picture. You might not be familiar with that story, so let me recap it for you. If you're watching on demand, now's the moment to skip recap if you, if you are aware. But let me tell you the story. Zeus, the king god, has a lover called Leto. It's not unusual for Zeus. She got pregnant, and Zeus's wife Hera was not happy about this. Again, not necessarily unusual in this mythical world. Hera banishes Leto. Python is a dragon who was warned by an oracle that one of Leto's children would destroy him. And so when Leto is banished, Python pursues her in order to destroy her children. Ringing bells? Great, good. Leto is protected by Poseidon, another god. So a place is made for her. She's protected by Poseidon's waves. Again, hopefully ringing some bells here. Um, where she gives birth to the twins, Apollos and Artemis. Apollo and Artemis, sorry. She gives birth to them in this myth on the island of Delos. Delos is 40 miles due west of Patmos. Patmos is the island where John is writing this letter. So potentially, he's drawing on a story that is local to him. <clears throat> when Apollo was four days old, he hunted down Python and killed him with arrows because he is a hunter. So far, so Greek myth, right? But this story is not just a story. That's not the way that it's operating in the world in which John is living. It's actually part of the way that the emperor explained and legitimized his rule. It's part of how the emperor made sense of him being in charge. So, when John's writing, best guess, the emperor Domitian is in charge, and he actually talks about himself as the child of Apollo. What does this mean? It means that he's presenting himself as a kind of political slayer of the dragon-like foes that oppose his empire. And before you just shake your head at the weirdness of the ancient world, I want to show you this political cartoon from the Times, which is quite recent. I can't remember quite how recent. You will see in this picture that the dragon, which is China, has Uncle Sam in its coils, um, bling around its neck to represent its wealth, and doesn't appear particularly impressed by the plucky British bulldog in front of it. The dragon... Um, this kind of image-based political story-making isn't actually a million miles away from our imagination. It's just that we've got used to speaking a different language most of the time, and we tend to live in it, right? So the idea that someone's using this story in this way, it's not actually as weird as it seems. So when John picks up this current political story, this myth about Leto and Python, and he puts Old Testament imagery into it. Why? Why? Why would he do that? He does it to completely change its meaning and instead to bring us to our third image, 
which is of Jesus ascending so that John can retell the gospel. So how does this work? Well, in a political cartoon, it matters who is who. So this is a second political cartoon from the same cartoonist in the same newspaper. Other newspapers are available. doesn't matter. But you can see in this picture, the dragon, which is China, has scorched its own leader who's trying to COVID test it. In other cartoons, yeah, I think we've all been there. Um, trying to COVID test the dragon? No, no one's been there, Mark. In other places, President Xi would be the dragon, but here he's been scorched by the dragon because his own people have been pushing back against his COVID regime, right? So it matters who's doing what role in the cartoon. It matters who is the dragon in the story. Does that make sense? Great, good. It's going very well so far. <laughs> so who's who in the story of Revelation 12, and why does it matter? Well, in the political myth-making of the emperor cult, Domitian is the heir of Apollo who's going to defeat chaos, this dragon force that sits on the outside. Domitian is the hero who does the deliverance. But in John's story, the empire is the dragon. Domitian is the dragon. The dragon is this force which is actually attacking the people of God, uh, the woman, and somehow, in the middle of it all, there's this child who's born to rule, who's anointed to rule with this iron scepter, and is snatched away and taken to God and his throne, which is this really important place. We know that because we've been to Revelation 4 and 5. The throne is where the lamb is at the heart of God. You remember, the only one worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, the slain lamb who is the Lion of Judah, the glorious one on the throne where there's all power and all authority and around which the worship of heaven centers. That's the person who is actually the child in John's version of the story. So Jesus is Lord, and Domitian is not. Praise the Lord. So what's going on? What's going on in this very strange story that we heard read from Revelation 12? John is holding up a vivid picture of how the birth of Jesus has radically transformed the way that power and worship work in the world. There's this woman who is a sign. There's this dragon who is a great sign and a portent. But right in the middle of the story, there's this child who is real. Jesus is the realest thing in this vision. He's the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament says about the Messiah. And he comes to rule and to reign. And more than that, more than being the realest thing in this vision, he's actually achieved this because he wasn't destroyed by the dragon. His ascension to the throne proves his victory. Easter is in the rearview mirror for us, but that means ascension is coming. I know you all celebrate Ascension Day. It's a very exciting festival. More chocolate, I think. Um, but it's the ultimate vindication of Jesus because he's not just a real child thrust into a cosmic battle of images. He sits on the throne with God, and he judges. And ultimately, this is what delivers the people of God. In the hymn of praise, 
the poetic piece within Revelation 12. War breaks out in heaven and Satan gets thrown down. Michael and his angels, Satan gets thrown down because the child comes to the throne. And no matter where the dragon pursues the woman, no matter where Satan and Satan the devil pursues the people of God, God sustains them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that life is pleasant for you and I as the people of God. And that brings us from the imagery of Revelation 12 to the implications of this vision in Revelation 13. So the final sentence of Revelation 12 says that the dragon took its stand uh, on the sand of the seashore. And what follows, in what follows, in Revelation 13, two beasts emerge. First one from the sea, and then one from the earth. And they each derive their authority from the dragon and extend the rule of the dragon. So uh, this is all the evilness comes from the dragon. So everything is going back to this picture of Satan. They each derive their authority from the dragon and extend the rule of the dragon. And you, yeah. But the key thing that these beasts achieve is that they are the ones who tell you what it means to engage in the public sphere. They determine whether or not you can buy and sell in the market. So without going into masses of detail on this, how do you understand the significance of this for you today? A scholar called Bruce Metzger puts it this way. The profound religious insight that lies behind these kaleidoscopic pictures in chapter 13 is that men and women are so constituted, they're made in this way, that they will worship some absolute power. And if they do not worship the true and real power behind the universe, they will construct a God for themselves and give their allegiance to that instead. Everyone's going to worship something. The choice is whether it's God or not. And actually, I think that's the why behind this extended story through Revelation 12 and 13. Why? Why? If all you want to do is retell the gospel, why not just tell stories about Jesus? We like that. We like it more than dragons and beasts. It makes more sense. Why not just write another gospel? John's trying to tell us something important, something about the importance of the stories about Jesus for our story. That's why this matters. That's why revelation, that's why discipleship on the edge, that's why look at the signs and the symbols. Instead of being the savior, the empire is now aligned with the beast and the dragon. And we all know what happens to the dragon ultimately. It's defeated by the child. What's going on in this story is that any and every non-God power, no matter how powerful they are, is being confronted by the reality of the child. What does that mean? It means that anything, any and every claim on your allegiance that is not God is being confronted. Anything you're trying to build your life upon, which is not Jesus, is being challenged by this. This can show up, I think, in your workplace. 
either through like an overt secularism that wants to actually challenge your faith or the undermining creep of attitudes that are hostile to faith because they just tell you how to make your life meaningful in a way which is not Jesus' way. I think it can show up in your family where they, whether they just don't get that faith stuff or belittle what Jesus is doing in your life or just assume that you're not quite serious about Jesus. Beyond that, I think this kind of thing can show up in your trauma, in the internal response to the pain that happened to you that wants to shape how you respond to everything else that happens to you. Various writers say something along the lines of, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. And what is going on in this story is, you've got a dragon that's representing all of the evilness in the world, all the, way that, all the ways in which the world is broken, and you've got a child that triumphs over it, and you're being confronted with the choice. You either live with the beast or the child. It's not easy, but it is an option. I think it can show up in Satan whispering accusations in your ear, most often in your own voice, because according to the National Science Foundation, which I think is American, 80% of our thoughts are negative, and 95% of our thoughts are repetitive. The story that you keep telling yourself about yourself that hammers away at yourself, you don't actually have to give that your allegiance. It might be a lie. It might not be real. It might not be as real as a real child in Revelation 12 with a rod of iron. And this is the key, actually, I think, for us, because actually, I think this is how you overcome. It might have got lost between (laughs) some of the more explosive images. But did you notice verse 11 of our reading? It reads like this. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Now, those of you who stuck for six across the seven letters of Revelation may remember the repeated refrain from those letters, which all finish with promises to the one who overcomes. To the one who overcomes, I will give this. To the one who overcomes, I will give this. Repeatedly through the seven letters. And here, at the center of Revelation in chapter 12, you find out how that happens. And there are three elements I want to pick out of this verse. The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and their attitude to life and death. So first, you overcome by the blood of the lamb. Just talked about that negative, negative thoughts, self-talk, 95% repetitive, all of that kind of thing. Who is it that's behind accusation? Who is it that accuses you? That's Satan. Satan. Satan's name in Hebrew, its original meaning, is the accuser. And that is how it plays out. Satan accuses. Who is it that accuses you? It's the dragon. And what is the answer? It's to plead the blood of Jesus. It's to remind the dragon about the child. See, Satan's right that your life is broken by sin. I don't know if that's news to you. I don't know if that makes you feel happy or awful. But Satan's right that your life and my life are broken by sin. 
But the child was raised to reign with God. The dragon doesn't actually triumph over the child. He doesn't manage to destroy the child. The empire didn't manage to destroy the church. But more than that, Satan didn't manage to kill Jesus and keep him in the grave. Jesus was raised and Jesus ascended. And it's this child that deals with justice. It's this child that crushes the head of the snake. It's Jesus that deals with Satan. And I think it's worth emphasizing this because I think you and I live in a world which is obsessed with what you can see. But what if the most important things that are happening day by day are not things that you can see? Because actually... As a Christian, you might not have known this when you walked in. That's what you believe. The most important things that are happening in the world day by day belong in this story of dragons and women and beasts and children because that's what's really real. Jesus is the realest thing in this story. It's more real than your mortgage or your energy bill or your targets at work or the letter from the hospital, or the judgment of the court, or the accusations in your self-talk. This story is more real than all of that. This story is where everything else is going. You overcome by the blood of the Lamb because Jesus takes care of Satan. But this comes out in the word of your testimony. This is how this is made real. This is where the reality of that story hits the, uh, puts, the rub, puts rubber on the road of your journey. That was a bit twisted, wasn't it? You keep telling the story of Christ in your own life. Paul, when he's writing to the Galatians, tells them that for anyone who was ever baptized, they're now in Christ. And this is more important than anything else that ever helped construct or define their identity. He writes this, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is who you are. There isn't rich or poor anymore. There isn't um, white working class or uh, black and minority ethnic or abled and disabled or these categories are of fundamentally lower importance than the fact that Jesus has invited you into him. And you keep telling that story about yourself. It's not the greeting I usually lead with. I usually tell people I'm Shane's friend. But um, it's not the greeting I usually lead with. But the truest thing about me is that I am washed in the blood of the Lamb. Try that next time. Hello, nice to meet you. I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. Also, my name is Mark. Um, But seriously, this is what matters the most. It comes out in the word of our testimony, the thing that we say about ourselves. But the blood of the Lamb changes everything. The word of your testimony reflects that change in you and embeds it. And this will totally transform your attitude to life and death. Do you hear the last line of this verse? They did not cling to life even in the face of death. You see, you have a choice. 
You either serve the beast, the dragon, or the child. You walk the way of the dragon or the lamb. Continuing where he left off, Bruce Metzger, the scholar I quoted earlier, puts it this way. In the last analysis, fundamentally at the bottom of everything, it is always a choice between power that operates through inflicting suffering, that is the power of the beast, and the power that operates through accepting suffering, namely the power of the Lamb. And this is why in Revelation 13, I know this is the climactic moment you were hoping for, this is why the message in Revelation 13 to the saints, to you and me, can be, let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive, fight back. Into captivity you go. If you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. He's telling people who are oppressed, and a genuine, martyrdom's a genuine possibility. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. What's that? That's a challenge. You've got a choice here. You either fight with the sword or you walk the way of the lamb. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Too right. You resist. This is the message of Revelation here. You resist. You live in the story of the child. You resist until you're called to be martyred. And then you go to the lions trusting the lamb. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to act. And then you face the final journey trusting that he is the resurrection and the life. You put all your eggs in this basket. There's only two baskets, beast or child. Dragon or lamb. And the call on your life is to put all your eggs in one basket. You only get to choose one. I think there was more in that sentence, but it didn't get said. You go to the lions trusting the lamb. This really, this really lands for me because I remember very vividly the day when I had a barium swallow test. An x-ray that watches what is happening when you swallow, because you swallow something radioactive or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> don't look to me for medical details. <laughs> I remember this very vividly. The radiologist was a tiny little Asian lady, and she came out to speak to me before the test, and she told me what we'd be looking for. She told me how she'd been asked to screen for this rare condition that I probably didn't have, what it would look like on an X-ray if I did have that condition, how there were three tests that we would do. She went in, she put on this massive like, lead vest thing, and I was like, do I need one of those? And then, and then I realized before that word came out of my mouth that no, I didn't need one of those because I was the one being X-rayed. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as bright as I look sometimes. <laughs> Um, we went in. There were three tests. She did test one. She looked at me and said, well, I know what's wrong with you. And the bottom dropped out of my stomach because it was the one thing that I didn't want. It's, it's like the one thing that I didn't think I could cope with. It was like a shattering reality for me. So I held it together and did many, many variations of swallowing different things. And then I got in the car and drove away and pulled into a lay-by and called my wife and cried down the phone because I was pretty sure I'd just found out how I was going to die. I am nothing if not melodramatic, and I'm not dying, just to be clear. 
But in this moment, I am losing my mind, crying, not making sense. And I, and I said something about being scared of, I think this is how I die. I feel like I've just found out how I die. And my wife said to me down the phone, there are some things that are more important than death. That's, that's what's going on here. There are some things that are more important than death. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. There are some things that are even more important than death. Can you imagine what the church of Jesus Christ looks like when it does not cling to its life even in the face of death? Can you imagine your discipleship when you actually hold nothing back? When you're not kidding yourself anymore that you haven't got anything else to give Jesus, but when it's actually true, when the glass balls have actually been shattered, when you've actually confronted the the self-talk, the accusing voices that Satan is throwing at you, whether they come from outside or inside, and you've told them all to go and listen to the child and to bow their knee at the feet of bow, bow their knee at his throne. Can you imagine living like there are some things that are even more important than death on a daily basis? Because it's true. It's true. God's reality is more real than the world around you. The child is real. The dragon and the woman, they're just signs, but the child is real. And the throne that he was snatched up to is real. And the kingdom of God is real. And it's the most real thing. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids, and we've got to the last battle. And they go up to this, they go into the new Narnia, because it's a new heaven and a new earth. And the, the, one of their party starts to say, I think I've come home. I think the only reason that I ever liked Narnia the first is because it looked a bit like this. And actually, this is where I belong. This is more important than death. This is what's really real. This is where I was made for this whole time. And I just didn't know it yet. It is real. And you belong here. You belong there more than you belong here. It is more important. It's more important than my death, and it's more important than your death. This is what's really real. Satan knows his time is short, and he will go out of his way to make your life miserable. But you overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by remembering what Jesus has done, by the word of your testimony, by continually retelling that truth in your life. And when you do that, not even death, will hold fear for you. And all fears ultimately come back to death. But not even death will hold fear for you because you are his and he is yours. So what do we do? What do you do when you're faced with this reality, with this kingdom, with this call for the endurance and the faith of the saints? What do you do? You surrender. You hand it over. Maybe 
it's possible this was all new to you, and I like totally concede that it would sound nuts if that's true. It's like some crazy combination of myth and fairy tale. But the invitation, if that's you, is to come to Jesus. Come meet this child. Read the Gospels. Start with Mark. It's my favorite. Um, find out. Find out what's in his story and get to know him. Talk to him about what's troubling you and begin to trust him. Surrender, if this is all new to you, looks like letting your guard down and allowing the possibility. But maybe it's not new to you. Maybe you've been on the road with Jesus for a while. What's surrender? You're not going to like this necessarily, but surrender is you hand your whole life over. You look at the possibility, the probability, the definiteness that you will die and you take everything and you put it in his hands. You know, I used to think I'd done that. And then I went to hospital and I realized I had headache. So I want to invite you into that now. I'm going to invite the musicians to come and lead us in worship. But before they do that, I want to invite you to surrender. You might want to move to do this. You might. This might be a moment for you to kneel before Jesus, to bow your knee before his throne. no pressure. No one has to do anything. You might want to open your hands. You might want to kneel. But I want to invite you to surrender. The things that came to your mind when Amy asked you to put a hand on your heart, the things that the things that are the obvious ones that stand in the way of you giving everything to Jesus, whether that's the children whose lives you love more than your own, or the finances that you are completely convinced you require to keep you going. Whether that's, whether that's actually your pain, the amount of trust involved in handing over your pain to Jesus is considerable. It's so hard to trust God with our most treasured hates. Jesus is here, and we have a minute.